Tudor Nation. How is everybody doing today? Y'all doing okay? Talk. You really care. Talk to us. Talk back at the podcast. That's right. Talk back at a pre-recorded podcast. Or you can always, if you'd like to talk to us and tell us how you're feeling and how much you love the podcast, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Two Dope Teachers. You can follow us on Instagram. It's the same handle, Two Dope Teachers. And on Facebook, which now you can like at people on Facebook. I just realized this. So it's there at you go. Teachers on Facebook. It's yes. simplified for you, my man. That's it. I noticed. I noticed that. I noticed that. I was like, oh, wait. Everything's at Two Dope Teachers. Well, what I love about this is you noticed it because I told you, not because you were on social media noticing it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Of course. That's that's. It's called a brand. You have, right. to, you have to. Consistency means something, even really in does. this pandemic world. It really does. You know? It really does. Well, we we don't want to spend too much time with the nonsense right now, um, because we actually have a real treat for you today. Yes, an amazing interview with uh, somebody I think that you will find inspiring, um, somebody who's out here doing the work, um, somebody who's committed to it, and uh, just really somebody overall who's just a dope human being, you know, like, just like you meet people and you're like, oh, this is fam, this is fam. That's right. Like, like, like we could be kicking it right now, let's go. Yeah, Let's go. Absolutely. And and it would be cool to kick it because right now she's in Oakland and and Oakland is a cool town for real. Shout Oakland out to is Oakland. dope. Shout out to Oakland. Except not except not y'all warriors. Um, uh, oh but, yes, yes, but, yes. We ain't we ain't talking about that. We're not talking about the moment. Although you know what, like Clay Thompson is like one of the most chill people in the world, and Steph is hilarious, and <laughs> like I, I see a lot of parallels there. Um, you know, so no, so the interview we have today is with uh, the co-founder of Quetzal Education Consulting. Although that doesn't really begin to, you know, to Kevin's point, it really doesn't begin to capture the kind of individual she is. Uh, we have Marilyn Suniga, who is just, she's just got an incredible story and some incredible perspectives and kind of what you said, man, about a person's just kind of humanizing spirit and a person's energy just being really uh, powerful and strong but also welcoming and kind at the same time. And uh, just a really important, um, you know, sort of just, just an incredible um, energy that she brings. Yeah, I'd, that's what I'd say. Thinking back on our interview with Marilyn, it was, it was you know, I, I, it was affirming, right? And confirming and all of that good stuff that you need. And, and, I, and, and what I love about Marilyn is, is, you know, that, that she's been this way since the beginning, yeah. since day one, you know? And yeah. so like some of us, it takes time like on this road to get there. And I wish I had been like uh, like her when I started my career, yeah. you know? Um, and I still want to be like her. So yeah, let, I think this is going to be a good <laughs> one. You will all enjoy this. We want to be like Marilyn if we grow up. Um, That's right. So the, yeah. And I think, you know, what's interesting is you know, we've come across some pretty amazing folks um, over the last five seasons of Two Dope Teachers and a Mic. Um, and there are some folks that are just so engaged and so like just activated um, around this work and around community. And I look at them sometimes, and in some cases, I'm quite a bit older than them. And I say to myself, you know what? I was thinking the same stuff when I was 
an early service teachers teacher. And then I look at Marilyn and I'm like, I was not anywhere near that. that no, nope, <laughs> no, nope, no. Nope. I was not at that level. And so there's a really cool vibe of kind of spiritual pedagogy that I'm starting to discover um, through the folks that we're talking to that, you know, we had a professional development that was really great with Dr. Ma Dr. Maria Salazar, who will actually be a guest on the show soon. Yes, most um, definitely. But uh, Dr. Maria Salazar talks about humanizing pedagogy and she's not the only one that talks about it. She's who I learned it from. Um, but I'm starting to look at this kind of spiritual pedagogy that's just so like, and it's not, re it's not just religion. It's not, it's a lot of, it's just a vibe, I guess. Um, but yeah, so um, we just really hope that you get as much out of this um, interview as we did. Um, I walked out of there a changed person and there was a, there's a musical recommendation, no spoilers. There's a musical rep recommendation that is utterly changed my week <laughs> um and so y'all gotta make sure you listen all the way to the top five uh, that's right that's stuff. right so uh we're out here um we hope you enjoy this episode we hope you enjoy your spring here is marilyn suniga all right people here we are right kevin we are here. yes here we are sunny denver day it's the sun is finally back <laughs> 70 no. degrees i'm at I'm in shorts. So over what's Kevin, I got to ask you a question before I introduce our amazing guest. Um, if I set the over under at a half a shovel, how many shovels are you going to buy this year? Are you taking the over or the under? How many shovels? How many uh, shovels I'm, will you buy this year? I'm, I'm taking the under. Are you? Okay. Yes. I'm, I'm taking, I'm taking the over and it may happen sooner rather than later. I think I was complaining on last week's show about how like, I thought I could wait until November and get a shovel, but then it snowed again and the <laughs> shovel is worn out. I told you not to say it. And you, you, you brought it on us. I know, you brought it on us. So, so look, take the under. You, you, you gotta <laughs> always buy, take the you under. Gotta buy a shovel. Oh, <laughs> always take the under. Always take the under. Well, folks, uh, as promised, we're here with um, an amazing individual, somebody that we've been connected to um, both through social media, but also through spirit. Um, and, and I think you're going to find out why in just a second. Marilyn Suniga, welcome to Two Dope Teachers and a Mic. I am so happy to be here. Thank you all so much for having me. Oh, man. Thank you for making the time for us. Thrilled that you could come through. Thrilled yeah. that you could come through. So, so we do have some questions. I'm going to give a little backstory um, about kind of why we sort of found um, Marilyn. And, and there's actually... Yes a whole bunch of folks uh, who are doing similar work as, as she is and um, and just want to kind of explain that. So y'all may remember that there was a pandemic that started. Um, I don't know, Kev, what was that, March of 2020? Yes, yes. March 13th like March. is where like I started at for me personally. Yeah. That's where happened. like it all went wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's where it all went. It all really went wrong, you know. And so, um, so I was looking around. So, you know, as, as you may know, as a listener, we had the incredible privilege in um, in kind of early summer of 2020 to talk to Dr. Bettina Love um, at the NEA Racial and Social Justice Conference. And at that point, we had learned about the Abolitionist Teaching Network. And me and Kev were like, um, yeah, please, let's. <laughs> you know, Kev, me and you had some real good conversations about that, like, kind of stumbling into the idea of abolitionist pedagogy was was like pretty meaningful for both of us, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. But I think like we were, we were thinking about it. It's like, you don't have a name for it. Right. You're like, Oh, that's it. That's yeah. it. That's, 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 that's what I want. That's it. That's and Loki, I felt, I, I felt a little silly because I was like, well, I know what abolitionism is. And yes. I can't believe it. Like, why have I not been using this? Why don't I you just know? apply this in my classroom? You know, and it's, it's, it's just, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it takes time, right, to coalesce movements and 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 modes of thought. And I think, yeah. you know, it's everything happens at the right time, right? And so I think it for us to stumble across the abolitionist teacher network, Bettina Love's work, you know, during the pandemic, during the uprisings, I think was really powerful. And it was like really, I think, solidified a lot of our perspective on our yeah. pedagogy and our yeah. work. And me and Kevin take things too far. And so we're just kind of like, okay, yeah, let's go. Where's this going? So over the course of that, th th this is me spinning a yarn, which I tend to do sometimes. Um, so over the course of that, I did what I often do when I'm in crisis. I went to the internet and, um, and there was this amazing webinar um, that was called Repurposing Our Pedagogies. And it was, I don't, I, th I think it was through the Education for Liberation Network um, and I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe there's something here that I can kind of check. And so I went on, I, I watched, you know, the whole, yeah, paid, you know, cause I really think that investing in this work is, is like really important. And I watched the whole hour and 45 minutes and, um, so many amazing things that came through, but Marilyn, your voice like stood out and you, you talk about like great voices for media and podcasting. First of all, you have a great voice for, for <laughs> podcasting and it's, it's got this real healing quality. But some of the things that you said, I'm gonna get my notebook from back then because I was, I was flipping through this and really looking at it. You, so here are some, here are some gems from that episode. And um, I just want to kind of have you reflect back on that moment and you know what that kind of meant um, for you and not, not necessarily just that webinar because you've been doing this work, like you've just been doing this work um, even before the pandemic, but let's see. So you talked about home as being a sacred place for healing. You talked about feeding one's spirit, which I'm kind of like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Um, <laughs> you use the phrase decolonizing time. Um, and I think at that point I jumped out of my chair. Ooh, yes. <laughs> Um, you, and, and so, and then the other thing that really stuck with me was, you know, and, and Kevin and I have, you know, we, you know, working in a school and knowing kind of what was coming, there was this kind of panic. How are we going to adjust? How are we going to, you know, pivot from this to that? And you said something that I was like that, because you said, I am not interesting in transitioning. I am not interested in doing in, in like kind of just going with, you know, whatever changes are coming that was so powerful. So just talk to us a little bit about that moment in um, yeah. if it rep if what it represented for you. Yeah. No business as usual is what I was like. I kept that was like my mantra in the beginning of the pandemic. It's no business as usual because yes. this this is not the time for that. Right. It's never time. To, to do business as usual because our children are not a business and <laughs> you know this work is not a business um but we but the system treats it as such right they treat schools as factories and they treat children as uh, a means for production and so i think that that was the first thing that i kept 
emphasizing with not just my loved ones and teachers who I care about in my community, but myself. I had to remind myself every single morning, um, you know, during that, that transition of shelter in place and transitioning to Zoom classrooms. And yeah. I was like, no business as usual. I would wake up every morning. I'm like, no, this is not business as usual. Wow. My, my families are in a crisis. And many of my families were experiencing um, evictions. Many of my families were experiencing unemployment. Many of my families were experiencing, um, you know, the inability to go to local mercados and bodegas to get food. And so um, there was way bigger needs to be met than figuring out how to transition my classroom to Zoom. And so for me, it was, it was a time for me to really push back um, particularly to my administration And really the communication that was being sent out via my school was like all of these ways of supporting teachers and how to transition academically. And I was like, wait a minute, we're worried about academics right now? I'm sorry, what? Like our families need so much more than that. And our our students need so much more than that. We're worrying about academics when many of our families don't even have access to Wi-Fi, access to computers, Chromebooks, like, can we first focus on that transition? Um, And so, yeah, I I realized too, that for me, how that transition was impacting me was I was now experiencing um, a toxic workspace because my school at the time, it was very toxic. And really like all the schools I've worked at have been toxic in their own ways. Yeah. Uh, we say a school is a school is a school That's right. and no matter how great the mission or the vision is yep. uh, but yeah I was I was like you know what I am not about to let this toxicity up in my home because my home is a sacred space my home is where I come after a long day of teaching after a long day of pouring out and you know doing right by my people's my community I come home to now feed my spirit and to do what I need to do to replenish, to feel good, to experience pleasure, whether that be yoga, whether that be taking a hot bath, whether that be listening to my favorite song and dancing in my living room by myself. I experienced joy in this space and now I'm having to work from this space. So what does that mean for my sacred space? So I had to do a lot of reflecting on how I was going to handle this personally and how I was going to show up, not just for my students, but how I was going to show up for myself so that I can show up for the world. Yeah. So important. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm having, I'm having that same experience again. Um, it's interesting just as an aside, um, I I was in a conference last couple of days and, um, and Verizon came to talk to us about all the wonderful little tech gadgets that they're, uh, developing. And, um, and a few of us raised the, the issue of like, well, yeah, but shouldn't high speed internet just be a civil right at this point? Like, where we're living right now and uh, and so it's so just kind of like that pivot but um yeah that, that's but first healthcare but first like absolutely absolutely yep yep yep, yep. absolutely and wi-fi yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> and wi-fi right yes that's right, that's right. yes i love that point though marlon about uh like protecting our space right because that's what that's that that's like was the interesting thing about this process and me and Rardo talked about it, you know, and, and thinking about my students, it was like, now we're trying to colonize kids' homes. 
right? Now you're, the colonization has come directly in. And now we're telling kids, turn on your camera. You know, you're, it has to look like this in your house. This is what I have to see, you know, and all this stuff. And, and I think what happened, and thankfully some people in some school districts figured this out and they were like, that's, that's not the culturally responsive. That's not the right thing to do yeah. by kids, right? There's a lot of reasons why a kid's not gonna have on their camera. Right. And you can interact with them and check in. And if you want to know if they're safe, really check in with them. Their camera being on isn't really going to tell you what's going on in their life. Um, so I think that's important to, for us as teachers to protect our space, but also to allow for our students to have that protected space, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us about it, uh, because you're an incredibly passionate teacher, just listening to you speak about it. You know, like, I love it. It's, it's the teachers that like I want to work with that I wish I had had. But what what's your journey into education? How did you become a teacher? What brought you into it? Um, tell us that story. Uh, that is a whole, yeah, that is a whole journey. Um, I really hated school growing up. I absolutely hated it. Didn't want to go. Would make excuses not to go. And for the most part, I was just a student, like in elementary school, at least I was a student who kind of just like um, bypass, like bypass school. Like I wasn't like an A student, but I wasn't a failing student. And so my teachers just kind of pushed me through. So I was able to kind of stay under the radar for the most part, um, at least elementary school. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We can talk about how, you know, high school and middle school took a turn, but um, but the reality was that I really didn't enjoy it. And I felt a huge disconnect with learning and I felt a huge disconnect with education. And I felt a huge disconnect with knowledge, which is night and day compared to the person I am today, which is like a knowledge seeker. Right. And yep. somebody who's really passionate about connecting with different types of learning and different modes of intergenerational uh, knowledge and wisdom and ancestral knowledge and wisdom. And so um, my senior year of high school, I was asked by my guidance counselor to apply to college. And I was like, "Mm, I have no plans of applying to college. Like, as far as I'm concerned, like I'll have a little man shift manager position at the popcorn store and I'm making money. (laughs) Yep, yep. and you're like, why, like do, why do I want to go to more school and pay for it this time? <laughs> I'm 17 making bank for my age. <laughs> so right. <laughs> when, once I turn 30, I'm going to be rich. Like that was my mentality, right? Yeah. I didn't, I wasn't an anti-capitalist yet. So I was like, I'm cool. Like I'm cool off it. I'm like, I have my job set and I'm just going to keep climbing this ladder at this, you know, in the retail uh, business. And uh, my guidance counselor was like, well, everybody here applies to college. Um, I was a uh, Peruana uh, growing up in a very Peruvian household. Uh, my parents immigrated here one year before I was born. And so for me, it was about being able to provide for myself yep. and my family. Um, and I just so happened to be in a predominantly white district. My family Uh, My parents, you know, were in a situation where they were able to send me to that district. And um, I, there was this expectation of just like, you got to apply, you got to apply to college. And so my guidance counselor was like, well, you know, your GPA is super low. (laughs) 
and you don't have any volunteer work, like all you have is working experience. I'm like, okay, so that's, yeah. what, you know, that's you're, my experience. You're like, yo, yeah. you, you started this conversation. <laughs> now you're going to tell me what I don't have. <laughs> so long story short, she was like, well, we, um, we can sign you up for a senior service program and you'll basically be assigned to, you know, do service in the community. And I was kind of looking at her like, with that side eye and then she was like well you get to leave right after lunch i was like bet i'll sign up let's yep. do it yep yes. that's it that's it <laughs> and it just so happens that i got assigned to a second grade classroom and i remember you know it was in, it was in the same district so predominantly white teachers predominantly white students but there was one student of color black yeah. student his name was trey in that second huh? grade classroom and me and trey just kicked it all year long <laughs> nice. and he's the reason why I decided to be a teacher. I was like, yo, if I could, if I could have students like me and Trey and be that teacher that I never had, I could do this. Like wow. I, I could do. And so I finally decided, I was like, okay, so maybe I should apply to college. Cause like, I do, I do need to go to college to be a teacher. That's right. So she convinced <laughs> me. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, I, I love that. You know, and, and, and it's really interesting because the more we, the more we've had the opportunity to learn from um, educators of color, educators from marginalized and minoritized communities, um, the more we hear similar stories where it's like, well, I didn't like school. Yep. <laughs> and then, you know, something clicked a little bit. And, um, and, and that, that's really meaningful. Shout out Trey. Um, shout out Trey. Shout I think the best, the best pre-service teachers, whenever, whenever I have teacher candidates, pre-service teachers in my classroom, it's the ones who just jump in and interact with kids yeah. that are like, yo, I'm kicking it with this kid. Like this is, this is the kid who I'm hanging out with, you know? So I love that. I love that. Yeah. And I think a lot of us have those kids that we can remember that just kind of pulled us in. Yeah. It'd be fun to sort of talk a little bit about, you know, as, as educators, um, what young people have taught us, because I think that that that's like a very real, um, you know, experience for you. So, so um, as as you've kind of grown as an educator, I'm wondering if there was a moment where the so you had said that you know when you were um, when you were moving towards shift manager at the popcorn store um, that you hadn't kind of adopted an anti-capitalist sort of position and I, I would imagine that a lot of the other abolitionist social justice uh, frameworks and understandings kind of came along later on how how did you get into that space where you started to see that there were these systems and that you wanted to take a proactive approach in um in kind of disrupting them and and eventually abolishing them um and and then choosing that for yourself and then choosing that for your students um what was that process like wow well I think it's interesting because I think I was an abolitionist before I was ever able to name it yeah um and that goes back to like my my start of schooling, right? Like when I think back to even pre-K, I started pre-K um, speaking Spanish. Spanish was my first language. And um, like I said, I was in a predominantly white district, predominantly white teachers. And so they, I remember my teachers in pre-K being like, don't speak that here. We only hmm. speak English here, right? And so me as a child, my only way of communicating at three years old, four years old, was through 
my language, Spanish. Yeah. And that's yeah. how I communicated with my family. And so to tell me to not speak, basically that's what you're telling me. Don't speak here until don't you learn be yourself. Our don't be yourself. <laughs> don't be who you are at home here. Exactly. And so understanding that message from a very young age is when I started developing a hatred towards school. And like I said, elementary school just kind of bypassed that was very quiet. Like, I just don't want to get in trouble. And I think that does come from an immigrant culturally from an immigrant household of not wanting to get caught up with the system. You know, a majority of my family was still undocumented. And so going under the radar is the strategy. Right. You do. And so. By my middle school, though, I had already developed a rebellious kind of spirit around school where I started, quote unquote, acting out. Um, But it really came from a sense of being, um, you know, experiencing, I should say, experiencing the school to prison nexus. And I was experiencing the school to prison nexus directly because I was getting in trouble for minor infractions that my white counterparts were not. And so especially things that girls get in trouble for. It's like wearing short shorts, uh, spaghetti straps, yep. short skirts. Dress uh, code violations. Dress code <laughs> violations, chewing gum. Yep. Um, <laughs> mind you, all of the skinny white girls sitting next to me were wearing shorter skirts than me. That's right. Were chewing gum, may have not been chewing gum with an attitude like me, but they were chewing gum. Right? Or, or, or their attitude wasn't perceived in how they presented. That's right. That's right. right. That part. That's right. <laughs> that part and so right because when we do it it's criminalized when we That's do right. it it's hyper sexualized or yep. adultified or all these things right and so um i remember being like i literally said this in middle school i would say this to my vice princer- principal mr malinsky i'm a shout out his name uh-huh. um <laughs> <I hope> he- <laughs> but he would have me in his office constantly and I would tell him, this is racist. Like, because that's the only language I have. Yes. But I didn't understand yeah. completely what I was saying. I was but, also like, were right. oh, <laughs> but also you were right. <laughs> but also you were right. But also I was right. And I remember my mom also coming in, you know, uh, not fully or fluently speaking English, but still having enough language to go in and be like, don't you come at my daughter like this, right? And advocating on my behalf. And then by high school, I mean, by high school, I was fighting. I was, you know, literally, let, let's go outside. You want to talk, you want to, you know, you want to say this about yeah. me? Because there yeah. was white girls who would just pop off and yep. say really yep. racist stuff, go back to your country, all that type of stuff. And they thought that they could get away with it. And in a lot of ways, <laughs> they, did they did through the system. But yeah. once school was out, catch me off this campus and see what happens, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And so... Yeah, that was that was uh, a lot of my schooling experience. And then, you know, the senior service program happened and I ended up in education in that route. And I guess when I first started putting language to my experience was my junior year of college. I was um, in a teacher education program at Montclair State University, and I was blessed to be in the classroom and in the presence of Dr. Bree Picower. Yes. And she just, you know, at first I was like, is this white woman talking about social justice this yes. and social justice that? And I always tell her this, she laughs. But I'm like, who cares? Like, what is she talking about? And I remember her showing us videos and pictures of like her fifth graders learning about gentrification, yes. learning about racism, learning about, um, you know, patriarchy. And I was just like, what? I don't even know these words. I'm yes. just learning these words. Yeah. And her fifth 
graders are like, oh, bet yeah. this it's on. Like yes. at that point, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. And now I have a word for it. Social justice education was my introduction to quote unquote abolition, right? And so, um, yeah, and then eventually I just continued to develop that, that critical analysis. But I think it was really, uh, it was really through my community organizing that I got to really name abolition and see abolition in action uh, way before I ever saw it like in the classroom. Yeah, what was some of the organizing that you were involved in? Yeah, so um, I would say that it started in the church. Okay. Uh, ah, yes. So, yeah. That can, be, that can be a location for it. Yeah. Absolutely. I think yes. more often than not. And ironically, I have this shirt on that I did not mean to. Yo, check uh, it. Organize the church. And so, um, yeah, I. It's it's interesting because my relationship with God is very. It's it's been a journey as well. Like mm-hmm. I did not grow up in a religious household. My parents, mm-hmm. you know, came from Roman Catholic families, uh, but didn't enforce that with me uh, mm-hmm. they they lost their faith in god like from a lot of like trauma-based yeah. um situations and so for me like i didn't grow up with that influence of like religiosity or like you have to believe in god or you have to pray yeah. however i remember praying from a very young age like wow. i remember you know watching the little movies and stuff like that like how I knew to pray was like kneeling down by my yeah. bed and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with the hands. <laughs> and so I remember doing that from a young age. Eventually when I was like 16, I asked my sister to take me to church, took me to Catholic church. I hated it. I was like, this is not God. <laughs> and then, <laughs> which I'm not saying God isn't present. No, no, no. Hey, yeah, yeah. Yo, this is your space I mean. right now. This is your space. That's right. right. That's right. That's <laughs> right. I mean. And then I ended up um, being in a relationship with a youth pastor who was at this church uh, called Christian Love Baptist Church in Irvington, New Jersey. It was a predominantly black church. And I give all, you know, all love and all, it's not even credit because it's way beyond credit due, but um, a lot of what I learned in my nurturing and showing up for youth and children came from black church mothers, right? And came from being in the presence of black women caring for children Mm -hmm. in teen church and children's church. And so that's where it started. And then it eventually developed into, um, once I was in undergrad and my last year of undergrad is when Trayvon Martin was murdered and Mm. Trayvon Martin's story like heavily politicized me because George Zimmerman was half Peruvian. Yes. And so that was oh, wow, less Peruvian. Wow. That was a whole divide in my family, right? Like that yeah. was a whole mm-hmm. like folks really being like, how could this happen to a child? And then other folks being like, well, my husband is a police officer and he's yeah. Peruvian. And if that happened to him, what? Yeah. And so I was just like in this position where I was like, how dare y'all talk about a child like this? Like, yeah. how dare you? Like children are my life's work. And so how dare you talk about any child like this? And this situation in particular, like really took me off to start organizing, um, particularly in Newark, New Jersey. And so we started an organization called the Maroon Project um, not too long after Ferguson happened and the murder of Michael Brown yes. uh, helped us start organizing Books and Breakfast. And so Books and Breakfast was birthed out of Ferguson, inspired by the Black Panther Party, of course, but it was yes. a monthly program providing culturally relevant texts to children and youth 
and providing healthy breakfast for families. And we brought that to Newark, New Jersey, and then chapters started growing across the nation. Um, and also just doing a lot of like leadership work with young women through Sadie Nash Leadership Project in Newark, New Jersey as well, um, and so forth and so forth. Thank you. Oh, I love that. I love that. Like books, books and breakfast just sounds so dope, you know, and <laughs> I think I, that's, but, that, but that's where the work lies, right? And that's, that's when we say like taking care of the needs of the community, yeah. you know, and I think that is, is critical, like the critical and the beautiful part of the work. Yeah. And I, I want to add to, um, you know, before we get to the next question, something that you mentioned about about kind of the immigrant experience uh, kind of coming into things. Um, my dad's a Mexicano who came here, um, you know, in 1974 without, he had a sixth grade education. Um, and and to your point, like the, the level of trauma um, that he experienced living in one of the Ciudades Perdidas outside of Mexico City, um, I, I, I still think he hasn't shared um, the trauma that he experienced. And, you know, I, I, I think he, for him, he crawled out of hell and he didn't have any interest in looking back. And so when you when you talk about kind of those learned behaviors when you're the child of an immigrant and, you know, trying to kind of stay out of the way, I was really bad at keeping a low profile um, <laughs> because, because I, would, I would act foolish in middle school. Um, and then in high school, um, it was it was combat. Even today, there's days I'm kind of like these people on Twitter act like they can't get knocked out you know like <laughs> they have some kind of superpower you know and, and I had that same energy in high school I'm like you know if we weren't across the room from each other I'm fairly certain you wouldn't be saying these things you know and so but just a lot of what you like shared really uh spoke to me because it it, it contextualizes why it was it was difficult um because because my my dad didn't you know come in and advocate for me like the conversation was always you pulled me out of work for this yep like I had to <laughs> work I'm losing five hours pay right now so you know what that means and so it was difficult because uh, you know it, it didn't feel like advocacy at all and um mm. but but I understood it and it and it made it tough to ask things you know of of my parents so I know just thank you for for highlighting that because um because it really spoke to me I was like oh man that's like my experience mm -hmm. yeah and I think too like I think uh, oftentimes what um what I've been reflecting on just in like uh, childhood wounds and you know that inner child healing work that's so difficult is that we have to accept that we all have uh inner child you know inner child healing to do but we also need to accept that all of us have like parent wounds no matter what our circumstances were and I think that when I try to have those critical conversations with my parents now it's almost this like offense like you know we provided everything yep. for you yep. and they did like yep. I never needed yep. mm -hmm. or wanted anything mm -hmm. more than I had like our world was perfect in my eyes like you know yeah. like and still as much as everything that they gave to us um, and everything that they were able to provide, even as immigrants in this country, still, like I have mother wounds and I have father wounds and I have, you know, those parental wounds that I still have to tend to. And now as an adult, almost parent my own inner child and yep. be able to show up for my inner child wounds in ways that 
my parents weren't able to and it's not that they're bad parents they never were right but it's it's just this this experience that we all have at different levels right and we all experience it differently yeah Yeah. thank you really important stuff really important Mm -hmm. stuff so you know and i love this point that you made about the black church and kind of finding your calling there because i and i think it goes back to that that love and you uh demonstrated immense love for your children and and immense love for overall humanity a few years ago when you tried to connect your students with the story of the political prisoner mumia abu jamal and uh so and it and it and it led you know whenever you engage in this type of work and i think we see it today where people are pushing back on uh anybody who engages in educating kids and critical race theory right uh you're gonna get some pushback so can you tell us about your experience about uh introducing your students and connecting them with mumia abu jamal and what led you to to decide to say you know this is what i want to teach my kids about and, and what happened as a result of that and your experiences with that and the learning that resulted from those experiences? Yes, 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 of course. Um, so that was my first year's teaching. Some people don't know that about my story, that uh-huh. that, that happens, uh, me being fired and having that uh, widespread political case was my first year. Wow. And it was ironic because my first year teaching started off the opposite of what everyone tells you everyone tells you it's gonna be hard you know you're gonna have your difficult days prepare yourself for it and I went in prepared for that and I started my year off like wonderfully like I felt like I was on cloud nine honestly like my (laughs) principal loved me how is this so great it's not supposed to be great. <laughs> it was really unbelievable. Like I was like, my principal loves me. My supervisor loves me. My kids love me. Like yeah. it's just going so well. And um, I, when the month of February rolled around, just some context, I was teaching third grade social studies and English language arts. And um, I uh, was teaching predominantly black students with a mm-hmm. small Latinx and growing Latinx population. Mm-hmm. And so where, where was this again? Sorry. This was in Orange, New that's, Jersey. Okay, that's right. New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Okay. So not to literally next door from where I grew up, but very yeah. different context from yeah. where yeah. I grew up. So yeah. um yeah, I was I was teaching third grade social and so in social studies when the month of February came around and I'm saying social studies because that's what they called it. I really we know it's ethnic studies. Yeah. Um, month of February came around and what I really wanted to do was a unit on freedom fighters, on black freedom fighters that are often not taught in our curriculum and our books. Yeah. And so I gathered my read alouds. I gathered, you know, any text that I could find that I could adapt to third grade reading levels. I was just gathering my resources and it, I ended up teaching a whole unit on Black freedom fighters. And we covered, you know, names like Angela Davis, Dr. Angela Davis, um, Ella Baker, Asada Shakur, uh, Black Panther Party. So we've looked at Bobby Seale and Huey Newton and um, Mumia Abu-Jamal was one of those freedom fighters. And when we came around to learn about Mumia, uh, who is a Black Panther, a former Black Panther, city of Philadelphia, for folks who don't know who might be listening. Um, and my students just took to Mumia. There was something about Mumia that they really loved. And many of them expressed just interest of like, 
how young he was. Yes. He was 15, 16 when he started being read internationally. His journalism was read internationally at such a young age. And I remember some of my students making the connections of like, he's my brother's age. That's my yes. sister's yes. age. Right. And uh, they were just like mind boggled by the fact that this young person was like so um, active in his community and active against police brutality. And so, which is something that they have seen, experienced, whether it's indirectly or directly. Yeah. And so when they took to Mumia, I was like, that they really love Mumia. I was like, I love Mumia too. That's you know? right. And Mumia <laughs> That's had right. a huge part in my politicization. Yeah. And yeah. so when the month of April came around, Mumia was really sick. That's when he was diagnosed with hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they weren't providing him medical treatment. They weren't allowing him to see family members or his wife and um, or his or his lawyer or anybody else. And so uh, there was a call for people to rally around getting him medical care. And so I shared that with my students. Like, yeah, this is the update on Mumia. Yeah. You know, just send out love, thoughts. If you pray, pray, you know, all those things. And one of my students raised her hand and she was like, well, you know, Miss Sunika, can we, can we write get well letters to Mumia to make oh, him feel better? Yes. And I was like, of course we can. Let's of do course it. we can write. Yeah. Of course we can write letters. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, and so we did. We wrote letters that day and uh, they wrote beautiful letters, drew mm -hmm. beautiful pictures. They drew pictures of like nurses caring for Mumia and oh. they wrote get well cards. And long story short, I shared with Johanna Fernandez, uh, who is a homie of mine, professor at Baruch in New York. And I shared with her, I was like, yeah, my third graders wrote letters to Mumia, not thinking anything of it. Right. My students had, had even asked me, Miss Sunyaga, do you think you can get these letters to Mumia? Yep, I was yep. like, I don't know if that's going to happen, baby. I can't promise anything. Yeah. And then Johanna was like, well, we're going to get those letters to Mumia. And I was yes. like, we are? <laughs> <laughs> Two days later, those letters were in Mumia's hands um, and he was able to stand up for the first time in a very long time. Uh, he was able to take pictures that day, which he hadn't done in a really long time. I mean, his spirits were just lifted from the words and the, and the visuals, the beautiful pictures that, that our students drew. Um, and I was on spring break. So that week after the letters were delivered was my spring break. And I was sitting on the beach, Myrtle Beach, with a couple teacher friends. Yes. And <laughs> Feeling good. Feeling good. <laughs> that done great work. Like, been a great year. Yes. yes. Spring no, break. No, we're on the beach. Shows us off. That's it. That's it. <laughs> I was celebrating. Yeah. I was celebrating my first year teaching. Yes. And uh, I start getting notifications on my phone on Twitter. And it was just a bunch of people, uh, trolls. Uh, adding my name, adding my Twitter. And I had like 12 followers at the time. So I was yes. like, what is this? You're like, what's uh, going on? <laughs> You're like, I have a Twitter. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, folks, folks started tweeting me and adding me on my social media, Facebook, Instagram. And folks were like, you know, fire this teacher immediately. And I was like, what is going on? Yeah. Phone dies. I have to go back to my hotel room to put my phone on the charger and I find out immediately that like Fox News had already picked up the story. My face was plastered everywhere. Um, my school name was plastered everywhere. Oh and they were already contacting like my principal in the district to terminate me. And when I say they, I want to be specific and name that it was the Fraternal Order of Police in Philadelphia. 
That's so, who it was. Of course it was. Of course it was. That makes they sense. found out that my students wrote letters to Mamiya. They were pissed. They started organizing to contact yep. their yep. people and to call the district. Yep. Bruh. And so, yeah, long story short, I was fired, but I, it was after months and months of folks organizing and rallying around my reinstatement. Yeah. Uh, the first board meeting, there was over 200 folks, community members who showed up. Um, I mean, folks, you know, were coming from all over the place to, to show support and locally too. my parents, my students were showing up. Um, not all of them. Many of them were like, I don't want to, you know, of course, it's like, that's a really hard situation to be put in. Yeah. Um, but I also there was letters signed by educators all around the world uh, supporting my reinstatement. Uh, and by the second board meeting, again, hundreds of folks showed up and I was unfortunately terminated by the board. Um, however, I think one thing that is not normally highlighted with my story that was a victory was that after I was terminated, the city of Orange community organizers organized so that the board of ed had to be elected by the people and not appointed by the mayor yes. because uh, many uh, folks uh, did not agree with that decision yes and uh, so that was a that was a huge win that's a, huge win. That, that's a system, there was a lot, system exactly win. there was a systemic win and there was so many teachings that happened in the community around mumia around mumia's case around yes. why it's important to teach black history why it's yes. important to teach ethnic studies so those teachings were happening within the community while all of this was going on so that parents could be informed so that community members could be informed. And so those were all victories that I feel like are not often highlighted that are really important because that's, that's community. That's how community shows up. That's it. One, one simple project, you know, and, and even though you did get fired, like you said, there was progress. Right. And I think, I think that is the important part of that story. And it's so powerful and then that, that the kids could understand Mumia's story and empathize with Mumia, you know? And I think it's important in our society that we empathize with freedom fighters like Mumia. And I can relate my first year, uh, one of the things I always loved common song for Asada. So I, I, I was like, I'm using this song in my class, right? Just because I love the song and, and I love the story of Asada and, and so, I remember and just thinking about my experience putting up, uh, so I printed out these wanted posters of Asada to hook my kids mm -hmm. and just put them out around the school. And the kids like were walking, they were like, who is that? Oh, <laughs> you know, and it hooked them in, but they were moved by the story, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it goes back to why it's important, especially today for kids to understand, you know, the history in this country and how freedom fighters have been treated. Right. In a country where people claim to be patriots, That's claim right. to be doing things to improve our country. And, and we have these great patriots, people like Mumia, you know, a journalist, right, yeah. a journalist. And we can't sleep on that, that he was telling the stories that they wanted not told. Yeah. Right. And still and still, and still is telling still, the stories. Still yeah. doing, you know, radio journalism yep. that's he's right. still out there and he's moving with the times that's you right. know his analysis is getting deeper and deeper each time yeah. i hear him speak i'm like dang and you got an intersectional lens like yeah ben, ben had an intersectional lens but it continues to grow right grow. yes yeah yes i remember i was an early service teacher this was 01 or 02 um 
be, because I did in fact start teaching in the late 20th century. And um, <laughs> so I say that to my students and they're like, whoa. <laughs> but um, no, so, and I'd used excerpts from uh, Live from Death Row. It, it came with the CD. And, and, you know, you talked about students saying, oh, he's 15. My brother's 15. I remember my students saying, he sounds like my dad. Yep. Like he's, he sounds like my dad. Like I could just listen to him talk. And yeah, I mean, that's incredible stuff. And we still have the, we still have political prisoners that, um, you know, Leonard Peltier it yes. had his, uh, had his most recent appeal denied, you know, the, 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 the elder is dying and, um, and it's just unconscionable. And I think, I think that there's, there's a very specific reason why folks, don't want our children to hear these stories yep. exactly. um, and and i think it's it's by design which is why our educators need to know these stories which yep. is why if you haven't you should read on a move mumia's autobiography or biography so um, good. you should read yes. asada's autobiography yes. right like those are must reads for educators and those are definitely not being read in teacher ed programs nope I mean, that's, that's a big thing. I was at a conference today and we were talking about pipeline issues and all of the questions of how we get more teachers of color into the pipeline. I'm kind of like, well, what's in the pipeline though? You know, like what's being fed there. Um, it, it's interesting um, to hear you kind of reflect on that moment. Um, there are no regrets um, for you. Um, I feel like it's very clear that you would do things exactly the same way. Uh, maybe not let your phone die um, <laughs> when you're on the beach, but, you know, but, you know, and, and it's so interesting because, and, and, you know, there was a, there was a pretty, it was a pretty nuanced statement that you made last summer in the, uh, in the Education for Liberation webinar, where you said, you just need to be willing to get fired you know, <laughs> and like, truth. like, and, you know, we talked a little bit before we started about how the spirit was kind of moving you uh, in that. And, and I feel like the spirit moved you there and you were, you were kind of, you were willing to, to, to sort of back up what you were declaring with your own kind of actions. And, and you're, I really encourage it's still on YouTube and we'll link it to, um, to this episode. Um, but you also offered a really empathetic kind of view on it saying, look, I understand like, people with children it's not as like there are things you have to think about and you know if you are if your income is supporting others like obviously those are things that need to be taken seriously but um but yeah marilyn's out here like <laughs> that's it about, yo be willing to get fired i got fired do my first work. year do the work now what do the work what? yeah and i think too like because i think sometimes that that narrative gets um I don't know. I feel like there's this also this grind culture narrative in in education yes. where it's like you have to be willing to like sacrifice and do everything. And, and I think that that can also be very toxic. So there is like you named, there's this nuance there. There's this nuance yeah. of being able to be spirit led in your decisions of being able to be really grounded in who you are and where you come from. And where you're calling and what you're calling and purpose is to be able to make those decisions, right? So when I say like, yeah, you got to be willing to be fired. What I'm really saying is you got to be willing to give up all your privileges, That's right? right? You got to be willing to give up whatever it is that you can give up for abolition. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's something that really, it, 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 it disturbs folks. 
because it's taking away comfort. It's taking away convenience. It's taking away all of the American dreams that are produced through this so-called rugged individualism that I worked so hard for. Uh-uh, no, yes, right. that's all tied to capitalism. That is all tied to colonization. 100%. And so we have to be willing to let that go. We have to be. It's that's hard. the only way we can move head. Yeah. And yeah. you realize when you let that stuff go that something else beautiful is going to emerge. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, something better, something yes. so much better. Yep. Well, that's, you know, and I remember, um, you know, I remember watching that and thinking about that because, you know, it's pretty arbitrary who who loses their job and ends up on, on Fox News and, and who doesn't. I You know, even before that, I was teaching about Mumia. I was teaching about uh, Leonard Peltier. But because I was teaching young people who had gotten caught up in the correctional system and young people who had been criminalized for their non-attendance of school, um, you know, everybody in that community was like, whatever you can do to reach these kids. And I'm like, mm, okay, we'll see. All right. Happens. I'll go, I'll um, go with that. At some point I would love to talk to you about um, ethnic studies because, you know, Kevin and I were talking the other day about how my effort to teach ethnic studies has been a largely clandestine effort um, and with little disruptions here and there, but that'd be such a fun conversation. Uh, what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what Marilyn is doing besides being amazing um, and kind of the projects that are that are happening right now. Some really, really dope stuff um, that she and others are working on. Um, and so we will tackle that right after this break. If you've made it this far into the episode, perhaps you are enjoying this remix conversation about power, culture, and education. And if that's the case, please consider joining others like you, educators, community leaders, activists, scholars, artists, and youth by supporting the Two Dope Teachers and a Mic podcast and productions on Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you can get on-air shout-outs, sneak previews, and early released episodes, insider information on the happenings in Two Dope Nations, and many other small benefits. The greatest benefit, though, is you enable us to keep bringing the fire. Because of people like you, we have expanded to two podcasts with the exit interview taking flight and forcing hard conversations about attacks on black educators. And we've added new features, including episode transcripts and a revamped website, all because of listeners like you. But that's just the beginning. Your support will open up new possibilities for us and for the communities we represent and advocate for. And at the $15 per month level, you receive a sticker. Yes, folks, a sticker. To support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash 2dopeteachers. That's patreon.com slash 2dopeteachers. Hey, everybody, we are back. If for some reason you are just now tuning in, go back and listen to the beginning. For real. 
Come how on, would you, you? How do you get to this point? What are you doing? <laughs> what, what, what are you doing what with you your doing? life? <laughs> I mean, maybe it's just like a, a circular approach. To I, I start. I start podcast in the middle. I sneak <laughs> up right. on them. <laughs> I, I find the break where they tell people about our Patreon, and then I start there, and then I go back and see what led to it. <laughs> it's like I'm choosing my own adventure. <laughs> so, so hey, yo, to each, to each their own. To each, each their, their own. own. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um. We are here talking to Marilyn Suniga, activist, scholar, and founder of this amazing organization, or co-founder, I think, of this amazing organization. We had a really funny conversation about it a couple of weeks ago, um, and so we're going to kind of get into that in a second. But um, but yeah, Marilyn is still here. She's not giving up on us. It's wonderful. Yes. Bless <laughs> us. I'm happy to be here. This is a fun conversation. Nice. Yeah, we're on nice. phone too. Absolutely. And we were just saying we could talk to her all night, but she probably has other things to do. Um, as and I think we have families that probably want to see us at some point. But yeah. Um, so uh just kind of hopping in with um some of this work. Uh so folks who follow your work, um, they, they can follow you in a bunch of different places connect with your social media presence. Teacher Tuesdays was like one of the most sustaining things that I like had during this pandemic um, because I would just check it out. And I'm like, this is just cool. This is like a really great kind of vibe and, and the humanistic approach that you bring towards these uh, conversations um, are really important. The, the thing that's kind of striking to me is that every single person who knows me will tell you that I'm a really slow learner. Um, and it just takes me a while to kind of figure things out. Um, with, without sounding ageist at all, you seem to have really reached this kind of depth of human understanding, you know, it, it, at a pretty quickly, like it's impressive. Um, how, what is it that's allowed you to kind of get to this ability to connect and this ability to just um, understand things on, on this such a human level? Yeah, what a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked this before. Um, it's, it's just, just like, it like, a... it like jumps off of the page when, you know, especially looking at, at some of the conversations that you've hosted and that you've been a part of. It just, like, that's probably the most striking thing to me about, um, about what you do. I think that honestly, like I, I spoke a little bit earlier about just like my development and relationship to God, to creator, um, right? Many different people call creator many different things. Um, I, I think honestly, like my ability to always connect with a higher being at a very young age also gave me the ability to see others, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. when I think about like in Lakesh, right? Like you yes. are my other me. Yes. That's something that I teach in my class every year. And we recite it oftentimes if students take to it, we'll recite it daily. Maybe we'll just recite it for a season, uh, depending on how students are receiving it. But Inlakesh is a real practice. It's a way of life. It's a way of being. And so when you practice, you are my other me, you see other people's calling in them. You see people for their purpose. You see people for something that is way bigger than just an individual, right? It's almost that like that tapping into tapping into spirit in a way that you're connected with self and connected with others 
goes way deeper than like any intellect or any language or any rhetoric. It's a feeling. It's something that you feel. It's something that you can't, even as I'm explaining it now, I feel like I'm not even making sense because it's just like, I can't explain it in words, yeah, right? Like yeah. it's something that I just know I feel and that everybody has, but that this world murders, right? Because yeah, it's spirit murdering, like yeah. Dr. Patina Love yeah. says, like institutions yes. murder our spirits. And I love right. how I always, you know, I always um, use that phrase spirit murdering from Dr. Patina Love. And she talks about it in the context of education. Yeah. But I feel like it could be applied to many fields and all institutions, right? These systems and institutions are spirit murdering. And for us to not be tapped in with our spirits is giving the systems exactly what they want. Period. Um, exactly what these systems are designed to do. And so when we're tapped in with that, whatever that looks like for you, right? <laughs> whatever that looks like for you, when we're tapped into that, that is, that is resistance. That is doing the work. That is being liberated. That is working towards collective freedom. And that is abolition. Yeah. Your, your existence is resistance. I got to shout out Kevin real quick, though. Um, when we talked to Dr. Love uh, last summer, Kevin, what was the uh, what was the T-shirt that you had made, bro? Spirit, spirit healer, spirit, spirit healing, healer, you know, like because we, we talk and I, I said, Dr. Love, what what's the opposite of a, a spirit murderer? Right. You know, and she's like, I don't know. I was like, is a spirit healer? <laughs> Right. And, and that so was amazing. I made these shirts. <laughs> I made them for me and Gerardo. We need to we need to put them out. I got a new shirt idea, too. Oh, like, no. That's where I'm headed. I'm like, oh, my shirt game. You get a spirit healer shirt as soon as they yes, come out. Yes. Yes. Like, we got to get those out. The post, <laughs> you know? But but I was walking in my neighborhood and, and there is an elder matriarch in my neighborhood down the street, an older black woman. And, and she is like very inspirational to me because, you know, she has, uh, she makes signs like, uh, you know, justice uh, uh, for George Floyd, hands up, don't shoot, always on her door, stop the climate apartheid, right? She, 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 ooh, she goes in on it, you know, like, and she, you know, That's amazing. we live in a, a moderately gentrifying neighborhood slowly, right? But she is this presence and I was walking, trying to get my steps, stay healthy, Right, right, connect that's to right. the earth, keep my balance. Ignore my and, text. And all of a sudden, she that's stops not good me. for your healing. <laughs> she stops me, you know. And the old older matriarch. And I, once I walked up on her, and she and she was like, "I was walking the dog." She was like, "You scared me." Oh, you're not a white person, so I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Yes. I'm She's like, "Oh, I, I was." I was, I was like, like, "I oh, thought you were you're a good. colonizer." <laughs> yeah, but she looks up and she says, "What does that shirt say? What does that shirt say?" I said, "Spirit healer." She says, "Oh." Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. I love that. Right. Yeah. But I, I think that idea of, of, you know, that we have to be grounded in our spirits, right. And who we are knowing ourselves, because that's that voice. And I get what you're saying. Like you can't always describe it or put it into words. Right. Or it doesn't, it, people don't get it, but like, I feel like there is this spiritual aspect to teaching and being yeah. in the classroom and what I see with the students and what you're connecting with. And me and Gerardo are privileged to be in a school. This is six through 12. So we see them, you know, as sixth graders becoming 12th graders and you come in as babies. This full cycle, you know, of, of, of what is and what can be with a person versus, 
you know, sometimes you, and I think in elementary, you guys get to see it, you know, oh my God, yes. a, a long period <laughs> yeah. of time and it's just powerful and it just puts it in perspective and it's, it just makes you feel connected, right? Connected to something much bigger than just a job, right? Yes. Just a, it, that the job stuff is what, what drives me up a wall, right? But it, when I'm in those moments and just, they are being there and, you know, I teach middle school. So like I now I can just be like, shoo! And the kids are just like, and it goes off. And other teachers are like, why would you do that? And I'm like, because I need to hear that. I've missed out That's on right. this stuff, That's right? right. Yes. It, it gives me something, keeps me young. So yes. I just, I really, I do see it as, it's really sacred work. Like when we start it to is. think about it. And I think, you know, in a lot of, um, our communities, our ancestral communities, you know, teachers, teachers were healers. They, they were, you know, yep. it was all tied together to the spirit. For it was sure. about walking and talking and knowing our students versus just looking at them as, as blank vessels that we need to impart knowledge exactly. on. Exactly. You know what, that just reminds me really quick of the, I feel like the best compliment I've ever got um, as a teacher was when a friend came to just chill in my classroom for the day. They're not an educator. They do uh, mostly like social work and therapy, but they came to just chill with me and my students. And they were like, you know what I love about you as a teacher? They were just like, I just love how present you are with your kids. Like you're just hella present. You know, like what they need and you care for what they need and you just know them. And I was like, dang, that's the best compliment I've ever gotten ever. Like- That's awesome. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Right, like don't evaluate me on how I'm assessing students. Don't evaluate me on how I'm managing my time. Don't hey, evaluate right. on how organized Pacing. I am, right? Pace, like <laughs> yes. forget all that. Come in and compliment me and affirm me and how I show up for my students and for myself, so. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and Bell, Bell Hooks writes about this too, where you know she writes about the the eros of teaching, not in not in the sense that yes, we think of yes. it, but when she thinks about the whole body, whole 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 spirit experience of of teaching and learning, and like and and for me, when when I'm when I'm feeling connected to my community, I, I physically feel it here. Yep, like I physically feel it right here. It's like a warmth, and it's and it and it's. And, and when you try to explain it to like, I mean, frankly, white teachers, they're like, <laughs> but it's just really interesting. <laughs> so when you think about your organization or uh, Quetzal, um, what does it represent in the broader movement for abolitionist pedagogy and praxis? Yeah, tell us a little bit about Quetzal. It's got a yeah. dope logo um, and um, it's super cool. Yeah. We worked hard on that vision and that logo. I think we really wanted it to uh, feel beautiful and liberatory. And we wanted it to have a feel of just like hope, not to sound cliche, but just like we wanted folks to see it and be like, that's dope. Like they're really doing something there. Um, and so it's on education consulting was birthed out of uh, three black and brown women yes. who were tired of speaking up, speaking out, giving free labor, yes. organizing, advocating, doing all the things in their schools and not being compensated, not yes. being credited, 
not being honored, not being affirmed in all that we carry. And we were sick of it. And we yeah. were tired of carrying unionizing at our charter schools. And we were tired of, um, and to be honest, like we were tired of men of color, like taking credit for our work. Yes. And we were tired of black and brown men, black and brown men coming and being like, oh, this is, a, this is you know, to our faces, like, eh, kind of like shutting us off and being like, that's not so much of a great idea, like right. whatever dismissing us and then taking that idea and doing it themselves and it's just uh, kind of like uh, i just said that like i literally just said that and now you're taking it and acting as if it's yours and so and and that's just one of many examples of how patriarchy shows up in critical educational spaces um critical organizing spaces yes. um, but you know gender-based violence is real in all the ways and so we were really like, you know what? F this. We're starting our own real. shit. Like, we're or, yes. so done with this. Like, we're real. so done with this because the change that we have seen in our schools, the transformation that we have seen in our educational spaces is because of us, point blank, period. It's because of queer, trans, black and brown women who make that shit happen, who go. literally teach from the womb. <laughs> you know, like, yes. I think that that is something that my partner, Lauren Adams, I have, I have to give this to her. Like she pointed that out to me, I think like my third or fourth year teaching. Yeah. Um, I was like, you know, it just hits different for us. Like, I, I think I was just unpacking the day of like how yeah. I had experienced gender-based violence that day. And I was like, it's just different, man. Yep. So it's like, there's something different when we teach. And she said, yeah, that's because we teach from the womb. Ooh. And I was like, <laughs> Woo. you're like, I was like, dang, you, <laughs> that's it that's it and that's when i fell in love no i'm just kidding. there you go um, but, <laughs> but yeah like no for real like it is different right and so like i think that there's a lot that we can do as women of color that um just goes overlooked and undervalued and of course deprofessionalized um yep. and of course like uh not compensated <laughs> right like we do free labor all the damn time exactly. and so we're like you know what let's start our own consulting firm let's do the work that we're that we've been doing and continue it but on a, on a, on a larger scale yeah. and so we are working with districts across the nation uh we are in schools across california we've done some work with organizations in colorado We've done some work in schools in Texas, New York, um, wow. and we're growing and we're expanding rather quickly. And it's only been about a year and a half. I was going to so say too, because one of the things you said in our in our conversation initially was that you you were getting work before y'all even had a name. <laughs> what? Uh oh. <laughs> okay. No, that's okay. I what are we called? But what, what, what are we calling ourselves? <laughs> Look, we know we're fire, but yeah, we don't have right. a name yet. For real. That's it. Real. We that's don't it. have a website yet, but whatever you're asking for, we can get it done. We, got you. You. we do we got that. You. We do that. See, but that that's where I'd be like, oh, yeah, our website's down for maintenance right now. But hey, let's just yep. talk real quick. <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh, I mean, it's it, so funny because currently our website, like we're not we're not fans of our website, but everybody who goes on our website is like, this is so dope. And I'm like, beautiful. Really? It's a beautiful website. 
Yeah, Thank you nice. so much. We're, we're working on it and we are definitely revamping just our whole vibe, our whole mood. We're thinking about how we can continue to grow in a collective way. And a huge part of our model is that we collaborate with other organizations. And so, of course, Abolitionist Teaching Network, um, we've been in conversation with them, but also Woke Kindergarten. Y'all have yeah. interviewed yes. Key before. Oh, yeah, Key. Yes. Ah! Key. This is, a, so, yes. this is we spent about three weeks as an official uh key stand podcast like that's yes, kind of yes. what we did and yeah yeah <laughs> and, and honestly like it's on a tele honest when we are not the best people for work like if we get a request and we're like actually this person would be way better for that like Amazing. we really just want our community to get what they need right? right and to get what they're asking for and so if we're not the best ones for it we're gonna tell you and if you're not the best clients for us we're also gonna tell you Right. Like if, if we feel like you're not ready to do that work and you're signing up just for on some performative yep. stuff, we're mm -mm, you're not ready to do this work. You're not ready because we all come out of the tradition of organizing, of grassroots organizing. All three of us, Anna, Danny and I have all have just has done. Yeah, we've been doing organizing longer than we've been teaching. Right. Yes. And we've been teaching for a long time. So when when people request to do work with us, that's a serious ask. And we don't take that lightly. Yeah. It's it. just so cool. Like, you know, when, when I think about, um, as, as you sort of talk about this, um, about, about this jump, um, me, me and Kev, we've collectively spent close to 40 years clinging to this job, <laughs> you know, just clinging to it, no matter what it does to us. And it makes me think of that, uh, the, the Jay-Z line where he says, I had to get out the boat so I could walk on water. And it seems like that's, a lot of what's happening and you know to the point and you know the the stuff that you are offering from you know just general consulting to ethnic studies work um all that stuff is just incredible and and it it hits at this thing that i you know i'm part of um we have a bipoc bargaining team with our union that's been recently uh developed or instituted after our strike i'm supposed it, to be on this team but yes I'm yeah you're busy you're busy you got other stuff you got you're, um, doing, yeah. you're doing your thing where you're doing it uh but but one of the things that comes up is kind of that extra work that happens to black and brown teachers that that we have to you know you're looked to as the you have to teach right i i have to educate my white colleagues on, on like why you shouldn't do what you're doing like consistently like you have to always be that voice and they're coming to you and they're like well what do you think about this student and I noticed in in your class you know he or she they, they're you great even get, we even get the nonsense questions remember remember old boy that asked us if it was okay for him to see Black Panther is I'm it like, okay for me to can, can you advise me on this can I like, go see Black Panther I'm like do what you want I was <laughs> like, like this is uh, be, I was like, be be real cool. Don't say nothing. Keep your eyes <laughs> on the floor because they all get you. All right. They all get you. So just, 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 you know, you could go, <laughs> but you got to pay for my ticket and I'll let them know. Yeah. I'll yeah. Um, I will, you got to buy snacks. That you got my ticket. Because they're, cause, <laughs> you know, the whole back row has to get snacks. That's reparations. Um, so. <laughs> no, straight up. Like, I'm tired of educators of color doing so much free labor. And we do it from a place of love, right? Like, this is a labor. Right. Of love. Yeah. However, we live in a capitalist society, and that is Period. our reality. And we have families, we have partners, That's we right. have lives that we are living. And yeah. so, if we are putting in extra labor, 
that goes beyond our contract. Like that's right. We should be compensated for it. We should be st- so. Yeah, sure. I'll advise you for a charge of one hundred fifty dollars. No, that's right. That's right. That's hey, right. We should have. We should have charged him for our advice on. That's right. That's men. right. No, I mean, and to, to that point, I was having a conversation today, and the, these are these are fellow like state teachers of the year, um, men and women of color, and we're having this conversation, and the conversation came up where they're kind of like, "Well, do do y'all get paid for the stuff that you're doing?" And, um, and I'm like, sometimes, and, and we had to have this like conversation, but how do, you know, and these are, these are the folks who have been literally recognized as state teachers of the year, who everybody should be hearing from in their state and not feeling like what they have to offer is of value. And, and the way I kind of frame it is like, first of all, don't undervalue what you do. That's right. Necessary for the children and the community that you serve. And second of all, and so I'm a big believer in sentence stems. So the sentence stem is that's that's a wonderful opportunity. Is this a compensated opportunity? Yes. And, uh, and so that's become uh, that's become something we're going to put on a T-shirt. Like, um, I, 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 there's another thing. Is that... this a compensated opportunity, Munoz? See, the hip hop head in me just just goes to I F you, pay me. Yeah. F you pay me. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, I, I, hey, fifty say. I, I don't freestyle. I don't rap for free. That's right. I, you know, I ain't doing this for free. I, I get paid for this. I do this. Oh. I really do this. So that's right. That's right. Me, you know, offered up. But I think you also, uh, Marlon, point out this thing about that, in particular, black and brown women's expertise as educators is often dismissed routinely. The expertise is dismissed uh, when it comes to compensation, when it comes to uh, leadership opportunities, but it's relied on consistently when things go wrong. Well, we're doing, you know, and Marilyn needs to meet Asia because I think there's some like, so Kevin and Asia are doing a uh, kind of a spinoff podcast off of this called the exit interview. And it's um, it's essentially black teachers who have been forced out of their positions. Mm -hmm. And right now it's been a hundred percent black women. And I think it says something about what this profession specifically does to women of color that it, that yes, it does to men of color, but I think that there's a degree to which um, these oppressive systems are weaponized against black and brown women. And, and um, so that's been a really interesting experience to see just these brilliant, incredible people who were run out of their jobs in the, in the most disgraceful way possible. It's hella sad. And it's such a pattern. And I think that, you know, I, I love that you all center those voices because those are narratives. Those are counter narratives. Those are narratives that really need to be heard and centered and what I also want to highlight is that I don't know if this is the exact statistic, but I know that it's like something wild. Like when when women are wealthy, like 90 percent of their income goes back to the community as compared mm. to men. 30%. I saw something like that. Yeah. So it's like 90 percent versus 30 percent. And so just thinking about how like when we talk about like getting compensated for our work, it's not on some like so I could get individual gain. Like right. it's so that we can look out for our community. Right? right. And so having that mentality is really important because we created Quetzal on some we want to put our people on. We want us to get compensated for our worth, but we also want all of the other critical 
queer, trans, black, indigenous, women of color that we know to also get compensated for their work. You know, like gender nonconforming folks, folks that really don't get valued for any listen, like we constantly get requests to do free labor. And like prior to get that I'm talking, right? Like all the dope educators I know are constantly getting asked requests for free labor. And meanwhile, they're paying, you know, male speakers out here like tens and thousands of dollars to just give a keynote. I'm like, come on now. Yeah. I'll do that. Like, that's no, not okay. No. The same institution that just hired that man is given that much and, and you're going to offer me nothing. I don't yep. think so. Yep. That's not right. cool. That's right. That's right. That's what's yeah. up. And as it turns out in capitalism, money goes a long way. And, you know, and, and if you don't like it, abolish capitalism. <laughs> that's that's what it comes down to <laughs> until, until that happens. Straight up. <laughs> until that's that happens. Well, uh, Marilyn, um, uh, th- this is this has been such a like m- Kevin and I have had a it's it's been it's been a tough year like and I think so many of us in the world have just had a really tough uh you know however many years this year has been and, um, <laughs> and um I have um I've found this conversation incredibly healing and um just really exciting like I'm ready to run through a wall through like all this stuff like it's like let's do this you know and just want to just want to just uh show just appreciation for for this time um we do have a really big question that we do need to ask and um it's controversial it's controversial this is this is a very controversial question that's right. Um, we don't judge. We don't and, judge. We're, and, and we're, so, we're all about love here. Yes, but but Fine. people react to it a certain way. You know, people people get nervous about it. Some people embrace it. Some people run with it. Yeah. But um, this is the I guess like this is our James Lipton question. You know, right. like this is in in Two Dope Nation. We always have to ask. You know, because we are lovers of hip hop. We were raised by hip hop. You know, and uh, so our question for you is this greatest top five rappers hip-hop artist performing artist performing artist you can take it where you want wherever wherever you want now we say top five but we are non-hierarchical that's right so so your top five does not have to be like this is the number one it does not have to be you are not tied to this list you know, other than maybe your people might hear it and they might argue with it, you know, but these people are probably already debating about you, debating you about whatever, whoever's on this list, right? Um, but uh, you are not tied to us. It could be what you are listening to right now. It could be like your forever all-time favorites. You can have multiple uh, number fives. Yeah, so you, you can have, have like two number fives. Okay, okay, you okay. You can, have, you can have an appendix. With, the, the appendix is uh, what we call the Eric Hale rule. It's named after the mm-hmm. Texas Teacher of the Year, where he gave us a top five, and then he gave us 10 more if it was a top 15. And he's like, but if it was a top 15, then I would have to include, you know, so so there are no rules. Um, okay, I like that. I like that. I chaos, like no rules. Chaos reigns in, uh, in Two Dope Nation. And uh, yeah. we're here for it. So, what do you think? Listen, and I'm first gonna say I love the I love how y'all are saying two dope nation because 
we're homegirl nation. Okay, yeah. so shout out to homegirl nation. Shout out to ho- shout out to homegirl nation. We shout we are out opening, to homegirl nation. We are opening spiritual and diplomatic relations with the homegirl nation. Right. We're hey. very excited about uh, about this connection. All right. Yeah, and and you know we're a bunch of educators and artists who love to talk shit, and we're just dope. <laughs> yeah, love that. That's so tough. So, <laughs> Oh uh, man, top five. Yeah, that's hard, but I will give it a try. Um, all right, all right. So, and, and I and I'm since there's no rules, I'm gonna like you know it's R and B, hip hop, hip hop R and B. That's why yes, yes, take it where it needs to go. But I, but I do love hip hop too. So I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna say, uh, Tupac is the first per- first name that comes to mind. I love yeah, Tupac always. so much, yes. so, so, so much. And in so many ways um, had an influence on politicizing me as well. And before I even knew I was being politicized. That's right. 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 Um, yeah. I want to, for sure, for sure, I'm from New Jersey. So oh. Lauren Hill. You can. That's right. Everything. Yeah. This Education of Lauren Hill is my favorite album of all time. What a great one. One of the greatest records. I mean, I just love her and I would play her in my classroom all the time. I, my kids knew Lauren Hill. They do. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. For sure. Um, who else? I am going to. I, I really love TLC, y'all. If I could go back and see a concert of like a 90s group, it would yes. be TLC. TLC. I love TLC. They were just talking about stuff that 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 women artists like female artists weren't talking about during their time and they were just being themselves like if you listen to interviews you know that it's just like they're literally they were literally like okay people were were calling us feminists but we weren't necessarily self-identifying as feminists we were just being us (laughs) just being minds. no i mean i I remember the fellas i was in high school in the 90s i remember the fellas getting heated about tlc i'm like why y'all so mad it's like they're not wrong (laughs) Can they powerful and you mad that they're that's right that's right <laughs> when you mad um okay so then i'm gonna give you two like i guess like more recent more recent um artists i love kendrick lamar yes good kid mad city is my favorite i know that's debatable but good kid mad city did it for me it's I'm a powerful sorry. record not sorry a powerful not record. sorry i think sorry, i literally have the i literally have the record it's not like a seat like like yeah. one of our colleagues gave me the record, Kev. It was wild. Yeah. You can't argue with that. You can't argue. Yeah. With that. Okay. And if okay, you cool. are arguing with that, you probably you you don't know what you talk about. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I love No Name. No Name yes. is, is no it. Name. I no. mean, No Name is one of the first artists that my partner and I connected with. You know, obviously she's a musician, so she loves music. I love yes. music. Always have loved music. And I remember she was just over kicking it. We were just friends at the time. She was over one night. And I put on no name and she was like, oh, you know, no name. I, you know, right, I mess with right. you. I was yes, like, yes, yes. That's uh, like, so that's, that's the flex. That's a low key flex. You're like, all right, flex. check this out. That's right. I, I, uh, I'm, and well, then yeah, I'm going to say, well, I'm going to say one more. Say as I'm many say, as you want. <laughs> I'm going to say one more because these are my peoples and I just love them so much. And they've had such an impact on me as an educator. Um, and it is it is my partner's band. It, they're called Soul Development. Ooh, and so uh, S-O-L, Source of Light Development. Um, and they are, man, they are some powerful human beings. I mean, they, 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 they're, 
I believe they self-identify as like jazz, hip hop, soul, fusion. Um, And the way that they deliver what they have to say is just so powerful. Their their album is called The Soul of Black Folk, S-O-L, The Soul of Black Folk. Soul of Black Folk. Yes. So y'all, if you haven't listened, please listen. And if you're an educator... If you're an educator who's listening, please listen because that album, like, I'm, li- it's literally an offering. It's an offering to educators, to critical educators, um, to Black educators, and it's beautiful. So uh, that's beautiful the morning people. listen. That's the morning listen. Everybody, you know, as you get ready, as you as you on. get your materials ready, as I, I love to listen to music as I get ready. Drive-in. It pumps me up. That's it gets right. you ready, especially if it's uplifting. And this sounds like is is what I need. Yeah, it'll be a it'll be a good substitute for the rage playlist that I play on my way in, like because because that's seems to be the only setting I have these days. But um, that'll, that'll be a good alternative, a little balancing, a little kind yeah. of focus. Um, so we'll put the, we'll actually put these tracks in a uh, in an episode playlist, and uh, it'll be released cool. with uh, the episode. So we're we're real excited about that little thing we try to maintain. Kev, what do you think about this top? Uh, I love it. I mean, it's a a silly question. Why would I even ask? I mean, it's a good one. You know, TLC, you know, as as a Georgia boy, uh, uh, (laughs) TLC has a special place in my heart. You know, they always will. And I and I love them for that for that exact reason that you mentioned. Is they were they were like, I didn't understand it, but they were women being young ladies and women being women and just doing their thing and having fun. You know, like friends, like that song is a bop. It's a straight jam. Yes. You, you cannot, you can't get, you get what they're talking about. Yeah. All of it, you know, their whole catalog. And and so like, I respect that. And then K-Dot, I, I love. And and to put no name on the list, you know, yeah. Pac, it's just all good stuff, you know? And, and then we got a new artist and that's what I love too. Yeah. You get new yep. artists. And, so that's what's you know, um, and, and Key, when we talked to them, um, shared a lot of um, the sisters unsigned and yes. um, some some folks who are doing music in the community and and like I you know I love that too because mm-hmm. you know there's for all the for all the platinum albums out there that may be great there there are people out here just making beautiful music and creating beautiful art. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like our time has come to a close. Um, Marilyn Tuniga, thank you for joining us today this was such a wonderful conversation thank um, you both i had so yes. much fun this was yeah. the best so glad you came through <laughs> and what what is so how can people support your work uh what are some projects you're working on how can people um get connected to you and others doing similar work to you yeah tap in um i'm mostly active on instagram I'm trying to get on twitter i just feel like twitter is like a 24 7 debate and it gets overwhelming but yeah I, i'm here for it too i'm here for yeah. um particularly black twitter so you can follow me on uh instagram at marilyn suniga m-a-r-y-l-i-n-z-u-n-i-g-a um, and I do definitely, um, you know, go to our website, aquetzalec.com. Uh, Quetzal is Q-U-E-T-Z-A, like the bird, E-C for educationconsulting.com. Um, yeah, and just tap in. I, there's a lot coming. I'm working on, uh, you know, with Homegirl Nation, we're, we're coming out with something called The Remedy which is just a healing space and it's for community. So all are invited. I think that that's really exciting project that's coming up and 
we're just excited to continue to build with folks. So yeah. Well, and just keep us posted on any way that we can just, just get more people connected. Um, because honestly, it's just, it's, it's just so motivating to just know that this work is being done. Definitely. Um, yeah. Thank so you. we have a way we like to take out the show. Um, I ramble like more than usual. And, um, and then I'll give a little bit of a signal and then we all say stay dope together. Are you down for that? Yes, I'm down. Sweet. All right. Uh, so Folks, thanks for joining us um, on this amazing conversation. We really hope that you are able to get some of these gems and get some of this amazing insight from Marilyn and her organization. And that there is a community like her, and um, and you know we've got to really uplift and amplify and be there. Um, so for our amazing guest Marilyn Zuniga, for the incredible Kevin Adams, my person. I am Gerardo Munoz. We are wishing you peace. We are wishing you healing. We are wishing you insight, humility, reflection. Stay strong, stay determined, stay focused on summer. Um, but above and beyond, you want to make sure you always stay. Stay dope. Here we go. The Two Dope Teachers in a Mic podcast is made possible by the people. This includes Martha Schwalbe. Jesus Rodriguez, Sarah Foleno, Vaughn Tolliver, Kate Berger, Jessica Robles, Nick Arnoldy, Kelsey Gray, Sarah Fatori, Jody Barker, Jill Boyd Myers, Josan Perales, Natalie Schaefer, Jackie Parkins, Asia Lyons, Ryan Sullivan, Matt Bush, Aaron Reed, Erwin Mananquil, Marissa Mochia, Patrick Kelsall, Olivia Mickle, Kelly Molinet, Connor Sauer, Ali Cochran, Jennifer Chidsey, Bram Hubble, Ella Paul, Michael Benya, Leah Kelly, Katie Johnson, Maria de Jesus, Diana Bustamante Aguilar. Other supporters include Serena Williams, Sophia Halpin, Kate Hollerbeck, Alexis McLean, Nate Kay, Emily Santiago, Jen the Tudor, Jennifer Torman, Mirna Camacho, Jonathan Alman. Esteban Ortiz, Olivia Hirota, Emily Fraser Abel, Leslie Hamilton, Kristen Edmiston, Patsy Everett, Vicky Onadera, Anthony Wright, Haley Breeden, and Mary Quantz. Thank you for your support. If you'd like to join that list of supporters, head over to patreon.com slash teachers and stay dope.